is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland Podcast. I have a super interesting guest for you today, and we're going to get to take a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look. Uh, we've got Danny Klein, who is the editorial director for Food News Media. Food News Media owns both FSR Magazine and QSR Magazine. Danny, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always uh, a pleasure to talk about restaurants and what we do. Well, we're certainly going to do both of those things. You started out covering sports for a couple of different outlets, right? Yeah. Yep. What led to the passion for restaurants and the move over into restaurant media? Well, to be honest, um, I, I did not make that move for a passion for restaurants. It was more to escape newspapers, um, <laughs> which I had seen enough of at that point in time in my life to understand that I should probably um, find a way out of there. And so I kind of really stumbled into restaurants, did not have a background in that or, a, you know, we all like to eat, but I did not have a restaurant business background in, in terms of um you know, the nitty gritty business side of things. So just got started, was terrified at first. The uh, first story I ever wrote was about restaurant groups, talked to some high level executives after spending over a decade talking to teenagers about football and volleyball and things. And it was a little bit over my head, but um, I stuck it out. So, <laughs> and I'm- How did that go, that first interview? You know, it went fine. I, I quickly realized that, you know, one thing's about journalism and, and I've always taken this approach is that I'm not really afraid to, to explain that I don't know what I'm talking about. So in scenarios like that, especially, I just, you know, let them do the talking, kind of try to be a vehicle for them. And, and actually, I've come to realize that sometimes that's better um, because I just let their expertise guide me and I don't have a, I've never run a restaurant, right? <laughs> So I, I don't have a sense of correcting them or infusing kind of my own opinions into things. So so it was fine. I mean, it was definitely scary. And a lot of the interviews I did that first year were talking to chefs. And that was probably harder because, you know, chefs are, are artist types. You know, they're not they're not like executives and <laughs> and C-suite, you know, fast food chains. So they tend to be a little more nuanced in the language they use. And that was a learning curve. But I just tried to read a lot of our own magazines over the years. And like I said, you know, I'm still standing. <laughs> and, that's, and that's really all that matters, I guess. So has the passion for the restaurant industry grown over those years? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I've come to love this industry. And it happened pretty quickly because I think if you talk to anyone who runs a restaurant, the thing you'll pick up, you know, right away is that you have to be a little bit crazy, you know, because... <laughs> The hours are terrible. The margins are terrible. The, you know, failure rate is through the roof compared to a lot of different sectors. And, you know, there are not a lot of people who get into restaurants to get rich. Now, of course, it happens and, and there are different ways to look at that. But more often than not, you get into restaurants because you have a passion for hospitality. You know, you grew up in this industry. And so, is a type of people that you meet and I think it gets into your veins and you you know become somebody who's very invested you know especially this past year and a half I've found myself defending restaurants a lot you know especially in those early March days you know when a lot of the messaging right out of the gate was you know do all these things except go to restaurants right <laughs> and so then yeah. well you know you you have to kind of be a spokesperson because you've talked to all these people who have put so much on the line for 
their whole careers and really legitimately risked it all. I mean, this is one industry that that is a, you know, not an overstatement. And so, you know, you take it personally, but I, I've, you know, I've come to think this is the most innovative sector in America. Um, and I think it has the most innovative entrepreneurs because there are so many different segments you can talk about in terms of, you know, fast, casual, fast food, quick service, um, you know, casual dining up and down the ladder, and they're all so different, and the people are different. And at the end of the day, it's a people business before it's ever been a food one. So I think that that really breeds a super in interesting industry to talk about and to, you know, write about for me. Yeah, no doubt. And this year must by far have been the craziest year of your career. I mean, it's literally what everyone is talking about is what's going on in the, in, in the restaurant industry. I think that a lot of restaurants and a lot of chains have done some super agile things to be able to adapt. What are those things do you think are here to stay long-term? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's May now. We find ourselves kind of coming out of things depending on where you live. Right. Well, you know, it, it, it kind of depends a little bit on the sector, but, you know, we, we've talked a lot about this recently and I was talking to a burger chain CEO a couple of weeks ago. And, and, you know, we were talking about this, this phrase, the new normal, which became really popular in the middle of the pandemic. And, and then it got to the point where we we're all tired of hearing about it. And it was kind of ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but with that said, you know, a lot of people, when they heard that the new normal sounded like, Oh, are we going to wear masks? Are we going to have sanitation you know standards on this kind of level are you going to order off your phone at you know and use single use menus and kind of a lot of these things that were you know covid lifelines and i think a lot of those will stick but most of them will not because i think what they do is remind you that there's a pandemic happening while you're eating <laughs> and, and i think a lot of times we escape from the pandemic and the quarantine life by going out to eat and we don't want a lot of these kind of ticks you know I think we need to see them at this juncture, but maybe a year from now we don't. So, but at the other side of that token, what the new normal could be, and this is especially true of, you know, quick service restaurants is, you know, what convenience kind of became during the pandemic, because we all said to ourselves at one point in time, oh, you know, I really miss going to this restaurant and you you know, pull out your phone and try to figure out, can I order it? <laughs> you know, can I go mobile order? Can I use an app? Can I do all these things that maybe I knew were there before, but I never tapped, you know, and, and maybe they weren't there before, you know, there were tons of restaurants who started to add all these things over the past year. So I think that's one of the things, however, that will not go away because once you use one of those occasions or you mobile order ahead at Chipotle, for example, you know, do you really plan to go and queue back in line afterward, you know, <laughs> like it doesn't really make a ton of sense for you as a consumer after you've had that convenience to go back to things as they were. So, you know, the phrase new normal now to me becomes basically a new, more seamless and frictionless version of convenience, you know, whether that's delivery or mobile order ahead or drive through even for, you know, the countless chains that invested there. So I, I think on that level, the consumer is never going to go back. I think they will dine in again. Um, but I, I think at the same time, that delivery takeout occasion that they added, you know, just to get restaurant food when they couldn't do it in any other way, they're going to hold on to those habits, you know, maybe not to the level that they have, but still they're going to be there higher than they were before. 
That's interesting. That kind of list of things that, that you put out there. I mean, as you know, you know, my life is consumed by food allergies, business and personal, right? And a lot of the things you just listed off actually made it harder for food allergy people to get food. Yeah. So we're all happy about, you know, some of the sanitation and cleanliness habits that restaurants have picked up, but and hope that some of those things stay, not, you know, the masks and the plexiglass, I don't mean that, but, you know, kind of the step-by-step making sure that things aren't contaminated or cross-contaminated. But a lot of the technology stuff, unless they really start to focus on that makes it a barrier to entry for um, food allergy people. I don't really expect you to talk about that. Just, you know, it's just kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Um, Right. Well, I I will say, you know, on that level, um, just as a consumer, the, you know, customization of making my meal through a mobile app, you know, for like Kava or something is, is to me a lot more appealing than standing in front of an employee and saying, you know, one scoop of chicken, <laughs> you know, because. Oh, no, I don't disagree with you at all. I just, yeah. you know, that, that look you in the eye and feel safe kind of thing that people feel comfortable with is a little bit more challenging and making sure that people read those details that you put in on the, on the technology side, if it's not intended for that, it's. Yeah. It's a little bit of a leap of faith. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's true. And, I, and I've run into that a lot throughout the pandemic where I've said, you know, no, whatever. And then it's there. And what are you going to do? Because of just like the drive through at that point, now you're down the street. <laughs> exactly. That's right. So yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of what came up for me listening to you talk about that and, and all things that I agree with, right. Just through that different lens, it makes it a little bit, um, you know, of a different challenge. So right. which, uh, what restaurants kind of stood out for you? with their agility in the pandemic. We had a quite a few with kind of deer in the headlights and we had some that really did a good job and shifted very, very, very quickly. What do you think? Well, I, th- I think that there was a common thread between the restaurants that shifted quickly and the fact that a lot of them had been shifting this direction already. And we talk about that a lot, that this idea that COVID accelerated or compressed, you know, timeframes of trends more than it invented them. So that, so what that did is it gave a leg up to brands like Chipotle, who we mentioned, and, and their digital sales have, you know, been triple digits throughout the pandemic, you know, as far as, you know, year over year type growth. And and a lot of that comes from what they did ahead of the pandemic, things like put up pickup shelves, you know, which sound like a simple thing, but the ability to walk into a restaurant and grab it off the off a shelf is a much bit different experience than if you were trying to get it off the counter and they're, you know, bottlenecking and and also they have a second make line that's just for digital orders and, and just those kind of things. But, you know, it's kind of tough. Obviously, you're trying to compare yourself to Chipotle if you're a lot of restaurants, if you're smaller and you don't have millions of dollars to build a custom app <laughs> and do a lot of these things that they were able to do. So and you saw that kind of divergence in the throughout the March, April kind of spurt of, of COVID where you had humongous winners or the gap between winners and losers was so large in terms of who had the ability to to serve these occasions and then also who was already known for that, you know, among customers. And that's where, you know, full service restaurants really took a pretty big dive in comparison. You know, of course they didn't have a drive-through and they tried to stand up curbside and do kind of these makeshift drive-throughs and things like that. But it was, it was not natural for them to do that. And it wasn't natural for their customers to do that. So the adoption period was much longer. In Arizona, I don't know about other states necessarily, but in Arizona, they were allowed to do both uh, curbside and delivery of alcohol. 
right. which was great. <laughs> you know, you could call your local neighborhood restaurant and like there's a Mexican place here, you know, a couple blocks away and all of a sudden they were delivering what they call growlers of margaritas, right? Yeah, that was so, a huge win for a lot of full service. Big win. And I, you know, but even so, and, and I've talked to a lot of people who think that or hope that that, you know, stays on on some level and hopefully it does, but they took it back here, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's more likely, you know, because it well, was always challenged. The bar industry was not particularly pleased about it. Right, yeah. But, you know, one of the things is that, you know, quick service restaurants throughout the pandemic, they saw this trend where they were getting higher checks or larger group orders. You know, and that's a couple of reasons for that. One being that, you know, you probably sent one person out to order for two people or, you know, you weren't having as many solo you know, trips to work and grabbing something on your way, or you were, you know, just kind of going and trying to stock up for a couple of days. But, you know, the, the, so another part of that too, is that delivery and takeout generally just have higher check averages. Now on the other side, full service restaurants suffer from the complete opposite trend because they miss that beverage attachment. You know, the alcohol orders you sitting there and ordering one mimosa and then a second mimosa and then, you know, or and, bottles of wine, right? Right. I mean, so, so the alcohol to go was really helpful, but it was only basically a band-aid on, you know, a, a bullet wound in terms of what they were missing. So that dine-in business for them. Well, it's all the profitability and bolster comes on the alcohol side. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. I'm painting a broad brush, not all of it, but. Well, definitely when you have servers and things, but yeah, I mean, that's, so that was something that they missed. And and right now I, I've actually, I've had some conversations with um, some brunch kind of uh, concepts and instead so of talk about, you know, brands that did well and, and two that come to mind on the full service side are First Watch and Another Broken Egg and, and kind of in the similar vein, you know, when they were able to open back up. This is especially true of another broken egg because First Watch actually just added alcohol during a pandemic. But, you know, the the CEO there, he had told me that the orders of alcohol with meals were just skyrocketing because I guess people were like, well, you know, I'm going out to, <laughs> to brunch or to breakfast. I haven't left my house in a week or, you know, I'm making this leap to go eat at a restaurant. The chances of yeah. that case of you getting alcohol are probably going to be. I guess higher. That's a phenomenon that they. Well, and with the to go, right? There's or, or the delivery of it. There's no drinking and driving, and you can put it in the fridge. You don't have to drink it all. Yeah, exactly. So. So why not, right? I mean, am I ever going to go to sit down at a restaurant and order like an entire pitcher of margaritas? No, but will I get that to go and bring it home, and then it stays, you know, for a couple of days or for a week? Sure. Right. Yeah. No, it's good. The executive chef for First Watch was on this show. I don't know, a few episodes ago. Oh, cool. Yes. I, um, I sat in on a, a, a kind of culinary demonstration that he put on a few weeks ago. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I had to, not, you know, we were all kind of making this meal that they had sent us in advance and I couldn't make it because my dog had eaten the entire loaf of bread the night earlier. Oops. Yeah, I was kind of embarrassed. <laughs> well, I'd have been bummed to miss that one. <laughs> Yeah, she looked like she kind of ballooned up and she couldn't get up the stairs for a day, but. Oh, poor thing. But, yeah. uh, that's got to be fun, though. I mean, do you get a lot of that where the restaurants are coming in for you guys and cooking for you or sending food and samples? I mean, not not before COVID, no. that's That wasn't really a thing. Um, you know, you go to conferences here and there, but these sort of virtual events, 
I had not ever attended one of those until uh, until this. You know, I did one with Wendy's um, not too long ago where we it was around breakfast, and then we did one with Sonic where they had a few new products. So yeah, they've been kind of fun. You know, I I hope they continue. You know, I don't because of course you don't have to leave your house and you don't have to travel to Texas or wherever the brand is based. So. Yeah. yeah, that's that's been a a COVID perk of the job. Um, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of transitions us into, you know, the behind the scenes, like what happens, right? So you've got this really cool gig to the average, you know, lay person who doesn't get to be a reporter and doesn't get to talk to all these cool people as literally your job. You look at reporters on TV and in movies and it's super glamorous and, you know, very fast paced and sexy and what does it really look like kind of behind the scenes? Give people a view into your day to day. Well, it definitely doesn't look like that. I mean, I've never, <laughs> I've never considered my profession sexy or anything that I've been doing in it. Um, uh, in terms of what it's like, you know, it's, it's different, you know, it's much different today for me than it was a year ago. And it's much different, you know, working here in food service than it was being a sports writer at a, at a daily newspaper in Florida. So, so it, it kind of changes, you know, I think that, um, you know, we, we essentially, you know, we're in offices and we're making a lot of phone calls and we're trying to follow what's happening. And, you know, so it's definitely a lot less glamorous, you know, I'm not in the parking lot talking to Deep Throat, um, <laughs> you know, and trying to break kind of the news story that's going to change the world. But, you know, what, what is always great about being a, a journalist and, you know, putting up with a lot of the, the challenges that you do in terms of deadlines and constantly evolving and making sure that you try to cover everything and tell all these stories without upsetting as many people as possible. It's just that, you know, you do get to talk to people about their livelihoods and that's, that's pretty unique. You know, the, opportunity to really listen to someone who's clearly smarter than you and then to go in and tell that story I think is is what makes most journalists come back and you know put up with with all this stuff that we do and um yeah I mean that's the part of my job that I like the most is just talking to people you know and there's a certain level of excitement when when something goes down you know <laughs> and you're trying yeah. to get that news out to to your readers and and that kind of adrenaline rush uh, that's unique to the industry, but it, but it's it's much different here than like you know newspapers, you know we always used to sit there at night and it was it was definitely this syndrome where you'd sit and listen to the police scanner and it's almost like I hope something bad happens and then we go you know you go rush outside, um, and I I'm kind of glad I got away from that because it's a little bit um, unhealthy probably if you really think about that, but yeah no doubt. So what yeah. what does this split kind of look like? I mean, there's some stories that you do or that are kind of announcements from companies, right? Or they put out something on the wire and you guys, you know, write the story around it. And and versus, you know, what are the ideas that are coming up from you guys and your team? And um, what does that look like? Yeah, well, we, you know, we have an editorial calendar, which is mostly for the magazine where, you know, at the beginning of the year, we'll really kind of lay out you know, main themes and then try to fill those in. You know, we have a few reports that are consistent every year, like the QSR 50, for example, which is a, you know, a countdown of the top 50 chains in America by sales and, and other things. And, 
you know, but outside that, yeah, like you said, you know, we'll get emails from brands or from the, you know, public relations firms that represent them and say, you know, hey, you know, we have a story idea and then, you know, it either interests us or it doesn't and we kind of follow up with that and that's sort of one bucket and then another is just news that happens that, you know, maybe they didn't share, you know, like XX went bankrupt, <laughs> you know, and then you got to kind of go look through. Not the, announcing that one, huh? Right. And then you got to go look through the court documents and, and kind of find the case and just write a story based on that, which my colleague Ben has is, is kind of taken on. And so then there's those. And then, you know, there's the stories that we also do. They're like quarterly reports where public companies have to share a bunch of information. And then you go off of that and so yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of different ways that it comes about, but usually it's one of those. You know, it's either an idea that we we build into, you know, that we came up with and try to sort of fit sources in and around it, or ideas that come to us from brands and then we just write that story, or things that just happen in the industry that we have to cover. How many times a day are you getting pitched by publicists? Oh man, um, <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's become a lot um, in the last few years is um it used to be mostly just like the people above me but but I would say it's at least a hundred or so oh my gosh a day yeah and you know 80 of them are probably not you know relevant um they're not the right sector even or they're just not stuff I write about you know and, and so I when I first started I used to try to respond to all of them and I thought I'm going to do that and now I I just can't because it's Don't do that. well what I've come to realize too is a lot of those emails are not specific to me they're just blanket emails to a bunch of different you know media outlets and so and you can and I can tell when that's the case we all can for my PR friends listening <laughs> um all right so here comes the hard hitting journalism question of the day are you ready yes I noticed a trend looking through all your stories over the course of the last bajillion stories that you've written. Where do you stand on the chicken sandwich wars? What's your favorite? <laughs> okay, well, so I have not believe you know, people don't really believe this, but I have not eaten most of them. <laughs> you've written about them a lot. I know. So I have had, I've had the Zaxby's sandwich, what I had recently, and I've had Popeye's sandwich. Um, which I did kind of when when the floodgates were open on that in 2019. But other than that, I have not had, to the best of my knowledge, any of the chicken sandwiches that are in this uh, race. I have not had KFCs or McDonald's. Really? And, um, I mean, it's kind of a favorite topic for you. I know. I do write about it a lot. And maybe it helps that I have not eaten most of them. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say that, you know, between the Zaxby's and the Popeye sandwich, I found them to be similar <laughs> um, just in terms of kind of how the chicken looks and um, how the bread is in the pickle game. But, you know, I did like the, the Zax sauce that was on the Zaxby sandwich. I don't know if I would rank it necessarily higher, but that is the one I had more recently, <laughs> you know. So it's the one that sticks in your head. Yeah, and I thought it, and I thought it was impressive. I mean, it was very, you know, the size of it was, you know, they had told me that that was kind of what to expect, and it did actually live up to that. You know, it, it was a pretty close representation to what I had seen in photos, and I know, you know, they were just recently named best chicken sandwich by Thrillist, so. 
So I do think they deserve their props and they weren't overselling their product. And I think the same is true of Popeyes. I think, I think the first time I had Popeyes, I did not wonder to myself, why was this a big deal? I kind of got it. And, and, you know, Chick-fil-A. Have all of them and do a whole story on ranking them, you know, little stars and bars and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, we've kind of tossed that concept around, but it's it would be dangerous <laughs> so, because because I don't really want to. Uh, They're all great. I don't want to put someone at the bottom, right? You know, because no, inev- inevitably, when you rank something, someone's got to lose, and that would. Well, you could make your own one and make you lose. Right. Yeah. yeah. Then someone above me would be like, oh, "I was only worse than the QSR sandwich." <laughs> so. Goes back to that. Make at least most people mostly happy, right? Yeah, so I I guess it's kind of a I don't have a full answer for that question, and I, maybe I should, but um, I stand. I just thought it was kind of funny scrolling through and looking at the different articles right in preparation for this. How many of them were about the chicken sandwich wars? Yeah, I wrote a lot of stories about Popeye's chicken sandwich, and um, you know, actually at one point I you know we had this, we were talking to like an SEO expert, and he said, you know, you're the you're the top ranking Google um, search for chicken sandwiches and her Popeyes. And I thought, well, is this a victory in life? <laughs> I like it. My brother, you know, my brother, um, you know, like my family usually doesn't really quite understand what I do, but they understood that as being something that they thought was, was cool. And um, I like it. Yeah. You should put a little badge on your website. So you talked a little bit about kind of towards the beginning that, you know, being nervous at the very beginning of, of moving over into the restaurant land about who you were nervous to interview some of the executives because you were new to it and all that. What's been your favorite or kind of most surprising interview that you've done? Oh man. Um, Either way there. In, in a good, we're talking in a good way. I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, there have been so many people and, and you know, I've really had so few bad interviews. That's the number one difference between this career and being a high school sports writer where they were almost always bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that that was something that was starting to kind of drive me crazy. I mean, you would have really good candid interviews talking to a teenager, but nine out of 10 times they did not want to really talk to me. Um, Media training is a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, recently, just last, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to this pizza chain in Iowa that I had never heard of um, called Happy Joe's. And I mean, he, you know, he, he was one of the more, I guess, you know, passionate, I would be the word I've used to describe CEOs that I've talked to probably ever went on for, you know, some 58 minutes. I'm in the middle of um, transcribing it is probably why it's jumping to my mind. But I mean, he was just, he kept using this term fairy dust. And when he was describing, you know, what was special about the concept, and it kind of goes back to what I said earlier, is that only really in an industry like that would that or this, would that even be a thought process that he's talking about why did he want to work here take the ceo role and it was because of this fairy dust in this restaurant (laughs) um oh well okay so one other one too that that jogged my memory here is in my early days i i did a story on john taffer and uh robert irvine they were going to host a panel at the restaurant association show 
And so they were doing interviews with, with journalists in these 15 minute blocks and I was the last block. So they just didn't, you know, they were able to not care about that 15 minutes. And um, we talked for probably at least an hour and it was mostly just the two of them yelling at each other. <laughs> um, and we went and we talked a lot. We spent a long time having, I just asked them this question of who would win if they got into a fist fight. And the answer, I don't, this was years ago, but I don't remember what it was, but it was great. And um, so I, I ended up just basically publishing that story as a Q&A because I couldn't really even capture the way that the two of them talked to one another more than me. And then when I saw them, you know, at the show, they both remembered, you know, that story and, and talking to me, which was always nice. And and that at the time was definitely one of the, the cooler and more surprising because I thought both of them were going to be a little bit, I mean, they're, they're both really interesting characters on TV, but you don't know what you're going to get. And and they were both great. I mean, they were both so knowledgeable about the restaurant industry beyond just being like, quote, you know, celebrity kind of figures. Um, so they really surprised me with their, their passion about the industry and the nuances of it. So that's one I'll probably always remember. I like it. That's awesome. What I always like to ask advice questions kind of towards the end, right? So, and journalism is a particularly interesting one, I think right now. What would you say to would-be journalists? Two spins to take. One on everything has gone digital and two around truth and journalism. Um, yeah, well, that the truth part is is complicated now because of of Twitter, right? I mean, a lot of things, I think, but yes, um, because you're you're oftentimes judged not so much by the story you write, but how quick you get news to whatever your network is, and then you're often judged by what your network is over who you write for or, or what you're writing, and and you see a lot of journalists now get jobs and move around based on that network and the community that they carry with them, almost like their own brand is more valuable than their merits as a journalist. And that has created a very complicated vacuum. And this is especially true in sports writing. I mean, if you kind of look across the lexicon of who's successful or well-known as a sports writer and who, you know, even when the ESPN was doing layoffs, it's like they were laying off their best journalists, but they were keeping their most known personalities. And how do you compete with that? <laughs> and I don't have a good answer. More of a popularity contest than anything else. It is because your brand and who you are on Twitter or whatever social media, you know, channel that you court is um, really important now to a lot of journalists kind of depending on obviously where you work but you know I would say to you know especially young journalists I try to mention this is you know and I would always take the first job that I could get at a small newspaper and and I would try to work from there I think a lot of people come out of college now and they they just get a little bit stuck on thinking I should go here or there and you don't think about how to get there. And I so used to see that a lot back when I was in the newspaper, when I would try to hire young journalists and they come out of a big college, you know, and they would think I should, this is what I was writing about in college. I deserve to be, you know, covering college sports and 
And A, you you know, you probably shouldn't. And B, you know, you're probably <laughs> doing a disservice to your own skill set anyway, you know, by by thinking that you could just skip over the learning curve. So, you know, that's kind of where I would begin. Um, what was the first part of the question? I know the second was the truth. What was the other one? Digital as uh, opposed yeah. to, you know, print. Yeah, and that and so I mean that's happening everywhere and it's happening where I work, you know, when I got put into a position of being, you know, kind of overseeing our digital properties. That was a new role for us. It didn't exist before. I, I was working on one of the magazines and um, and we just kind of realized that that was a movement that was coming. And yeah, I, I think that the best, you know, case scenario and a lot of times is that there are a lot of organizations now and you're working from home and you could work remote and they're probably digital only publications. But I think the the change that I've seen, at least this is how I like to operate, is I like digital content to look, you know, quote unquote, like print content. And that idea of them being different is too blurry for me now. And I think you don't have to say it's either a BuzzFeed listicle or it's a 2000 word article. You know, they could be the one and the same in terms of if you're writing for a website, you could write good journalism now. and that And that's kind of the... The way that I've approached it here at, at QSR and FSR is that I try to write things that, you know, you wouldn't really immediately go, wow, this was just a web exclusive, you know, and, and that's kind of how I would say it. But but you really have to you really have to judge that based on where you work, you know, because a lot of places say they want really quick, short content, breaking news. It's just online is an opportunity. And, you know, in addition to being a massive challenge and we're all trying to compete you know, for page views and engagement. And I try to look at it through a narrower lens. You know, I read this um, book once and uh, I think it was called The Content Trap, but they, they were talking about The Economist and how they said some, basically, you know, I'm going to write an article that I know that this one guy won't like. And it's, you know, done in the idea that if one guy doesn't like it, the other one will. So um, I don't think your doggy likes it. No, I, I don't know what she wants. <laughs> and she's uh likes to get her way, but uh don't they all? So tell everybody how to connect with you and with uh food news media online. Sure. Um so you can go to our websites of course, qsrmagazine.com and fsrmagazine.com. Both have daily e-letters that are free to subscribe to. Um and we also our magazines are free to subscribe to as well, but um, you, you just need to be an industry uh, um, person. So I'm not sure what my Basset Hound is bothering me about here. But uh, other than that, you can find me on social media on LinkedIn, specifically where I connect with people. I have left Twitter behind personally in my life. <laughs> was a big uh, avenue for me when I was in newspapers. But um, LinkedIn is the best place to find me now. Or, of course, you could just email me the old school way, which is Danny at foodnewsmedia.com. And then I like to wrap all of these up with two truths and a lie, which I have a suspicion that she wants to participate in too. Uh, she's adorable, by the way, and I've been laughing at her stretching and, you know, flapping her ears at us and such. Yeah, I, I um, gave her a candle. I don't know why I thought that would be effective. 
<laughs> I don't think she's into that, but so give us two things that are true. One thing that's not, and it can't be that you have a basset hound because now we all know that. Yes. Okay. And don't tell us which one's false listeners. If you want to know which one it is, you'll have to come ask us in the comments on social media or your favorite podcast platform. Sure. Okay. So I am from Texas. I went to the same high school as Woody Allen and I come from a family mm-hmm. of court stenographers. Ooh. Way to throw the outside curveball, you know? I like it. Well, Danny, thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the interesting conversation. And uh, listeners, as always, this has been the Shandyland Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.